Hi, this is Tzvi Freeman for Chabad.org. You may have read some of my articles on the site or seen some of my books. But for now, I want you to just sit back and let me turn your world on its head. New ways of thinking require new sets of words for most thinkers. Here's an exception. Every chapter of Rabbi Schneer Zalman's classic work known as Tanya provides a distinctly new way of thinking about life, purpose, and the world about us. Yet Rabbi Schneer Zalman chose to retain old words, just revealing in them a deeper meaning. The word bittel is a case in point. Bittel plays a central role in Rabbi Shnei Zalman's writings. It's a crucial concept in explaining how existence as we know it is always relative and never absolute, and why a good life depends on seeing and truly feeling how that applies to you. Bittel makes the difference between choosing to dwell in a fractured universe where each fragment makes a whole lot of noise, or choosing true life in a harmonious universe where the parts find their greatness within a wondrously greater whole. But to do that, Bittel required a whole new depth of understanding. So what is Bittel? Or using its adjective form, what do we mean when we say something is Bittel? In common use, Bittel means something's not there, cancelled, negated, wiped out, gone, as in what happened to our study group today? Bittel. Simple, easy, no explanation needed. Not so the Bittel of Tanya. Here, there's not just one, but two layers of complexity and depth. First, Rabbi Shnezoman, the eminent halachist that he was, borrowed a concept of Bittel as it appears in halacha, in Talmudic law. There, Bittel is often what you might call situational, or contextual. For example, a Jew is forbidden to eat a mixture of meat and milk. A cheeseburger, out of the question. But what if one teensy drop of milk finds its way into a monstrous vat of beef broth? There's no way anyone would be able to taste the taste of milk in that mixture. It's so diluted, it's, it's insignificant. So we apply the rule of bittel. If there's so little, no one could taste it, it's like it's not there, which doesn't mean it's not there. And that's the important point. Milk is milk, even a drop of it. And indeed, if drop after drop falls in, each drop accumulates until all those drops cry out in unison, we are here, we are here, taste and see. But right now, that lonely drop is ineffective, insignificant, and experiencing the tragic drama of Bittel within its exile to a foreign land of beef broth, like an immigrant who threw his weight around back home and now finds himself completely disregarded upon landing on new shores, as though he doesn't exist, even though he does. There's a popular art book called Zoom by the Hungarian artist, let's see if I can pronounce this right, Istvan Banyai that vividly and literally illustrates Bittel. So the initial lively scene of children playing ball looks very real and inviting until we zoom out to discover 
It's only a postage stamp being pasted on a letter by a young man in a, a very different scene, which then turns out to be painted on a billboard on the highway, which then turns out to be nothing more than some kids' toy cars, which then is lost in a yet wider context. So each context is not simply larger. That would only render the previous scene insignificantly small. Rather, each scene provides a whole new frame of reference in which the reality in which we were just immersed one page earlier suddenly, and almost mystically, is exposed as an irrelevant fiction, soon to vanish altogether within the even greater context of the coming page. There were never any kids playing ball. Banya played a joke on you. It was a postage stamp, not a reality, which means that once you've arrived at this new frame of reference, what you thought you saw never was. So that's not just a quantitative bittle, like one piece of non-kosher beef among many kosher ones. Neither is it just a qualitative bittle, like the quality of the taste of milk within the broth. It's an existential bittle, something like revoking a birth certificate. That's what we mean by existence is relative. Existence depends on meaning. Meaning depends on context. Change the context, you change the meaning. And that which was a reality a moment ago suddenly goes poof. So that's one layer of meaning and depth to work with, situational or contextual battle. In one context, you can be rich with meaning. In another all that meaning suddenly vanishes and nobody knows you even exist, and maybe you don't. But how does that apply to my life, its purpose and meaning? So hang in there. Here's the next layer. What if this new context is not a foreign environment such as beef broths to dairy, Ellis Island to Anatevka, or the frame of a postage stamp to any particular scene? What if the new context is your origin? By origin, I don't mean like a cow is the origin of its milk. No, no, more like the two rich and juicy examples Rabbi Schneer Zalman gives himself, he provides. He says, what if the reality of our world is like light inside a luminary? Or what if we are like words before they have emerged from the psyche? So the best way to explain those two examples is to first tell a story. Richard Feynman was a great American physicist and a brilliant teacher. He wrote that he got that way because he had a father who prodded him to ask questions. But even when he became the famous scientist he was, there was one question his father asked him that he was never able to answer. His father asked, So if photons come out of electrons, were there photons sitting there inside the electrons beforehand? <laughs> so it's a seemingly simple question, but Feynman, Feynman, the man who remade quantum mechanics so that we could put it to practical use, was unable to answer. The best he could come up with, he later wrote, was, not really. It's kind of like when you speak, words come out of your mouth, but they did they pre-exist inside you? Something from nothing. Solid evidence that Professor Feynman studied Tanya, 
Almost. Rabbi Schneerzalman was writing long before we spoke in terms of photons and electrons. Instead, when he wanted to describe the relationship of light with a light source, he talked about the light of the sun within the sun. Same thing. The sun, you see, is not light. Light is something that emerges from the sun, but the sun itself is its own entity. So is there light within the sun, the source of light? Yes and no. Yes, because, as Rabbi Shunir Zalman writes, if it shines down here on earth outside of the sun, how could it not exist within the orb of the sun? On the contrary, he writes, certainly it must exist in a far more intense state within its source than outside of its source. Yet, on the other hand, no, because within its source, the light is in a state of thorough bittal. It's not an entity of its own, that we could call light. It's nothing more than a certain capacity the sun has that it can generate light. Just like something much closer to human experience, words within the soul. You begin speaking a sentence not even knowing how it's going to end. Where did those words come from? Do you have, as one kid suggested to Dr. Feynman, a word bag inside you? Or did they just appear out of nowhere, unprecedented. Now, there's always a precedent, not scrabble words in a bag, but a reaction to something someone said, an emotion or a flash of insight. It's just that we're not aware of what's going on inside us until those inner churnings emerge in some articulate form, such as words, imagery, perhaps even drama in our minds. Or just words that suddenly jump out of our mouths like aliens making a blitzkrieg on planet Earth. So words emerge out of emotions and insights. But if I could travel in my magical school bus deep into your emotions, would I find words there? No. And yes. No. Just think of the time you saw someone in an intense emotional state and you ask them to please explain what on earth is going on here. No words jump out, not until the hysterics burn out and the tears cease to flow. Then maybe you'll get a few words until the flames of emotion rise again. Inside emotions, there's simply no place for words. But definitely, yes, Because you don't grasp in the air for words to express your emotions. The words fling open the doors and jump out. So they must have been inside there somewhere before they jumped out. Somewhere inside your emotions. What do they look like inside their spaceship of emotions? They don't. They're in a state of extreme existential bittal. They are too powerful to exist. (laughs) Now, this is neat. We spoke about milk taste bittle or zoom bittle, bittle within a foreign context. The right to exist was revoked because they had become so weak and impotent. But here, when things are bottle within their origin, they lose all sense of existence because they are the ultimate extreme of being. They're chilling deep within their own homes, being who they truly are, a possibility of their origin. So on the one hand, their existence is annihilated to the absolute extreme, incomparably beyond any of our other examples. And on the other hand, this is 
where they experience true existence. <laughs> so so you, you might feel frustrated at this point, even if the words to say so haven't yet emerged. How do we answer both yes and no, exist and don't exist, to the same question? Well, because it depends on what you mean by exist. Light exists within the sun. Photons exist within electrons, but not as a discrete entity. They exist as a feature of their source, not a thing of their own. The words exist within your emotions, but not as discrete words. An emotion has expression, definition, direction, intensity, a beginning and an end, and a need to be shared. The words are all already there within all those qualities of this emotion. They are intensely there, shining bright, so bright they don't exist yet as words. All that exists is an emotion burning. In fact, in philosophical Hebrew, as in philosophical Arabic and Persian, we use two different words to describe these two different concepts of existence. We say mitziyut and mahut. So English has some catching up to do. Mitziyut is your identifiable presentation as a something all its own. Like the word is, and that is a horse, or just that horse is. Mahut is the fundamental concept of what you are, sometimes called essence, the that of that horse is. Even if this horse never came into existence, even if it prevented itself as something other than a horse, its mahut still is. So what is its mahut? What is it in essence? <laughs> we can dance around that question, which is precisely what classical philosophers do. But in essence, it can't be said. You would have to be that to know, to know it. To bring it home, we all have some messy cobweb ideas of our mitziyut, how we think others see us, how we see ourselves, how we think others think we see ourselves, how we think others think we see them seeing us. It gets very complex. Your mahut is simple. You are an agent of the divine creative will. You are you because the creator who regenerates the mitziyut of this universe out of nowhere at every moment wants someone to go in there and fix his world. Put yourself into that context and all that mitziyut mess dissipates like pixie dust. So, do we exist? I mean, as a mitziyut, an identifiable something. Yes and no. Yes, because God spoke and the world came to being. All the universe is an artifact of divine speech. Ten utterances of speech, to be specific, as recorded in Genesis. Packets of creative articulation that contain all the information for all that will ever be, themselves beyond the space-time continuum that they generate, and so ever-present, continually sustaining our reality. If God himself says so, we must exist. And for precisely the same reason, no, we do not exist. Because, because unlike our words, those words, those divine words that create us, those words never left their origin. Because, 
because there's no place for them to go. God is one, so there's nothing outside God. So all those cosmic words that call us into being are like the rays of the sun's light within the sun, like your words of speech and thought before they have emerged from their chrysalis of emotion and insight. But does that make this reality of ours any weaker? No, quite the contrary. Within your source, you shine infinitely brighter. All you're missing is the delusion of otherness, because now you're one with your origin. So it comes out that in a certain crucial way, this deeper understanding of bittal expresses quite the opposite of its simple understanding. Something or someone who has true bittal has certainly not auto-canceled, self-abnegated, or self-annihilated. Rather, quite the contrary. In bittal, each thing finds its true place and power. Everything receives life, Rabbi Shnei Zalman wrote, by virtue, by virtue of its bittal, and commensurate to its degree of bittal. A creature entirely locked inside its own shell can't survive. Life is a function of self-transcendence. Self-transcendence, perhaps a, a close enough translation of bittal. Self-transcendence. You know, plenty of good evidence-based research has demonstrated this for human beings as well. Personal spirituality, defined for research purposes as a strong personal relationship with the transcendent. <laughs> if that's not bittal, what is? So that's been shown to be key to human survival, especially at the most crucial times in life. For just one example, a teen who has been nurtured with such spirituality, bittal, is 80% less likely to suffer ongoing and recurrent depressions and 60% less likely to become a heavy substance user, which makes it all a matter of choice. Life. What will be my frame of reference? I can choose to remain blind to all that is beyond my bubble, deaf to the grand symphony, oblivious to my creator, clinging to the delusion of autonomous power as though my ego is the vortex of all existence, in which case I end up as nothing more than a blip flashing for all its grand moment on the screen of space-time. Or I can find my glorious place within the infinite light, my true context, where I, as a discrete, autonomous entity, cease to exist, and there find eternal meaning and true greatness. So where is this place of union with your origin in this life on earth? It's in your bittal to your creator as you carry out the mission he's assigned to you. As Hillel said in the Mishnah, make your will battle before his will. Transcend yourself by connecting to the transcendent. For a Jew, that transcendence is in the study of Torah and the performance of all God's mitzvahs out of love and joy.